What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Book 2, Chapter 5 of War and Peace, Volume 1 by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Five That same evening there was an animated discussion among the squadron's officers in Denisov's quarters. "'And I tell you, Rostov, that you must apologize to the colonel,' said a tall, grisly-haired staff-captain, with enormous moustaches and many wrinkles on his large features, to Rostov, who was crimson with excitement. The staff-captain, Kirsten, had twice been reduced to the ranks for affairs of honour, and had twice regained his commission. "'I will allow no one to call me a liar!' cried Rostov. "'He told me I lied, and I told him he lied, and there it rests. He may keep me on duty every day, or may place me under arrest, but no one can make me apologize. Because if he, as commander of this regiment, thinks it beneath his dignity to give me satisfaction, then—'You just wait a moment, my dear fellow, and listen,' interrupted the staff-captain in his deep bass, calmly stroking his long moustache. "'You tell the colonel, in the presence of other officers, that an officer has stolen. I'm not to blame that the conversation began in the presence of other officers. Perhaps I ought not to have spoken before them, but I am not a diplomatist. That's why I joined the Hussars, thinking that here one would not need finesse. And he tells me that I am lying, so let him give me satisfaction." "'That's all right. No one thinks you a coward, but that's not the point. Ask Denisov whether it is not out of the question for a cadet to demand satisfaction of his regimental commander. Denisov sat gloomily biting his moustache and listening to the conversation, evidently with no wish to take part in it. He answered the staff-captain's question by a disapproving shake of his head. "'You speak to the colonel about this nasty business before other officers,' continued the staff-captain. "'And Bogdanich—the colonel was called Bogdanich—shut you up. He did not shut me up. He said I was telling an untruth.' Well, have it so, and you talked a lot of nonsense to him and must apologize. Not on any account, exclaimed Rostov. I did not expect this of you, said the staff captain seriously and severely. You don't wish to apologize, but, man, it's not only to him but to the whole regiment, all of us. You're to blame all round. The case is this. You ought to have thought the matter over and taken advice. But no, you go and blurt it all straight out before the officers. Now what was the colonel to do? Have the officer tried and disgraced the whole regiment? Disgrace the whole regiment because of one scoundrel? Is that how you look at it? We don't see it like that. And Bogdanich was a brick. He told you you were saying what was not true. It's not pleasant. But what's to be done, my dear fellow? You landed yourself in it. And now, when one wants to smooth the thing over, some conceit prevents your apologizing, and you wish to make the whole affair public. You are offended at being put on duty a bit, 
but why not apologize to an old and honorable officer? Whatever Bogdanich may be, anyway, he is an honorable and brave old colonel. You're quick at taking offense, but you don't mind disgracing the whole regiment. The staff captain's voice began to tremble. You have been in the regiment next to no time, my lad. You're here today, and tomorrow you'll be appointed adjutant somewhere and can snap your fingers when it is said, There are thieves among the Pavlograd officers. But it's not all the same to us. Am I not right, Denisov? It's not the same. Denisov remained silent and did not move, but occasionally looked with his glittering black eyes at Rostov. You value your own pride and don't wish to apologize continued the staff-captain. But we old fellows, who have grown up in, and God willing, are going to die in the regiment, we prize the honor of the regiment, and Bogdanich knows it. Oh, we do prize it, old fellow. And all this is not right. It's not right. You may take offense or not, but I always stick to mother truth. It's not right. And the staff-captain rose and turned away from Rostov. "'That's true! Devil take it!' shouted Denisov, jumping up. "'Now then, Wostov! Now then!' Rostov, growing red and pale alternately, looked first at one officer and then at the other. "'No, gentlemen, no. You mustn't think—' "'I quite understand. You're wrong to think that of me. I—for me. For the honor of the regiment, I'd—' "'Ah, well, I'll show that in action.' and for me the honor of the flag. Well, never mind. It's true. I'm to blame, to blame all round. Well, what else do you want? Come, that's right, Count, cried the staff-captain, turning round and clapping Rostov on the shoulder with his big hand. I tell you, shouted Denisov, he's a fine fellow. That's better, Count said the staff-captain, beginning to address Rostov by his title, as if in recognition of his confession. "'Go and apologize, Your Excellency. Yes, go.' "'Gentlemen, I'll do anything. No one shall hear a word from me,' said Rostov, in an imploring voice. "'But I can't apologize. By God, I can't. Do what you will. How can I go and apologize like a little boy asking forgiveness?' Denisov began to laugh. "'It'll be worse for you. Bogdanich is vindictive, and you'll pay for your obstinacy,' said Kirsten. "'No, on my word, it's not obstinacy. I can't describe the feeling. I can't—' "'Well, it's as you like,' said the staff-captain. "'And what has become of that scoundrel?' he asked Denisov. "'He has reported himself sick. He's to be struck off the list tomorrow.' muttered Denisov. "'It's an illness. There's no other way of explaining it,' said the staff-captain. "'Illness or not, he'd better not cross my path. I'd kill him!' shouted Denisov in a bloodthirsty tone. Just then Zirkov entered the room. "'What brings you here?' cried the officers, turning to the newcomer. "'We're to go into action, gentlemen. Mac has surrendered with his whole army.' "'It's not true.' I've seen him myself. What? Saw the real Mac? With hands and feet? Into action! Into action! 
Bring him a bottle for such news. But how did you come here? I've been sent back to the regiment, all on account of that devil, Mac. An Austrian general complained of me. I congratulated him on Mac's arrival. What's the matter, Rostov? You look as if you'd just come out of a hot bath. Oh, my dear fellow, we're in such a stew here these last two days. The regimental adjutant came in and confirmed the news brought by Zerkov. They were under orders to advance next day. We're going into action, gentlemen. Well, thank God! We've been sitting here too long. End of Book Two, Chapter Five. Book Two, Chapter Six of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Six. Kutuzov fell back toward Vienna, destroying behind him the bridges over the river's inn at Braunau and Traun, near Linz. On October 23 the Russian troops were crossing the river ends. At midday the Russian baggage train, the artillery and columns of troops were defiling through the town of Enns on both sides of the bridge. It was a warm, rainy, autumnal day. The wide expanse that opened out before the heights on which the Russian batteries stood guarding the bridge was at times veiled by a diaphanous curtain of slanting rain, and then, suddenly spread out in the sunlight, far distant objects could be clearly seen glittering as though freshly varnished. Down below, the little town could be seen with its white, red-roofed houses, its cathedral and its bridge, on both sides of which streamed jostling masses of Russian troops. At the bend of the Danube, vessels, an island, and a castle with a park surrounded by the waters of the confluence of the Enns and the Danube became visible, and the rocky left bank of the Danube covered with pine forests, with a mystic background of green tree-tops and bluish gorges. The turrets of a convent stood out beyond a wild virgin pine forest, and far away on the other side of the Enns the enemy's horse patrols could be discerned. Among the field-guns on the brow of the hill the general in command of the rear-guard stood with a staff-officer, scanning the country through his field-glass. A little behind them Nesvitsky, who had been sent to the rear-guard by the commander-in-chief, was sitting on the trail of a gun-carriage. A Cossack who accompanied him had handed him a knapsack and a flask, and Nesvitsky was treating some officers to pies and real doppelkummel. The officers gladly gathered round him some on their knees, some squatting Turkish fashion on the wet grass. "'Yes, the Austrian prince who built that castle was no fool. It's a fine place. Why are you not eating anything, gentlemen?' Nesvitsky was saying. "'Thank you very much, prince,' answered one of the officers, pleased to be talking to a staff officer of such importance. "'It's a lovely place. We passed close to the park and saw two deer. And what a splendid house!' "'Look, Prince,' said another, who would have dearly liked to take another pie but felt shy, and therefore pretended to be examining the countryside. "'See? Our infantrymen have already got there. Look there in the meadow behind the village. Three of them are dragging something. They'll ransack that castle,' he remarked with evident approval. "'So they will,' said Nesvitsky. "'No, but what I should like—' added he, munching a pie in his moist-lipped handsome mouth, 
would be to slip in over there." He pointed with a smile to a turreted nunnery, and his eyes narrowed and gleamed. "'That would be fine, gentlemen.' The officers laughed. "'Just to flutter the nuns a bit. They say there are Italian girls among them. On my word, I'd give five years of my life for it.' They must be feeling dull, too," said one of the bolder officers, laughing. Meanwhile the staff officer standing in front pointed out something to the general, who looked through his field-glass. "'Yes, so it is, so it is,' said the general angrily, lowering the field-glass and shrugging his shoulders. "'So it is. They'll be fired on at the crossing. And why are they dawdling there?' On the opposite side the enemy could be seen by the naked eye and from their battery a milk-white cloud arose. Then came the distant report of a shot, and our troops could be seen hurrying to the crossing. Nesvitsky rose, puffing, and went up to the general, smiling. "'Would not Your Excellency like a little refreshment?' he said. "'It's a bad business,' said the general, without answering him. "'Our men have been wasting time.' "'Hadn't I better ride over, Your Excellency?' asked Nesvitsky. Yes, please do," answered the general, and he repeated the order that had already once been given in detail. And tell the hussars that they are to cross last and to fire the bridge as I ordered, and the inflammable material on the bridge must be reinspected. Very good," answered Nesvitsky. He called the Cossack with his horse, told him to put away the knapsack and flask, and swung his heavy person easily into the saddle. I'll really call in on the nuns he said to the officers who watched him smilingly, and he rode off by the winding path down the hill. "'Now then, let's see how far it will carry, Captain. Just try,' said the general, turning to an artillery officer. "'Have a little fun to pass the time.' "'Crew, to your guns!' commanded the officer. In a moment the men came running gaily from their campfires and began loading. "'One!' came the command. Number one jumped briskly aside. The gun rang out with a deafening metallic roar, and a whistling grenade flew above the heads of our troops below the hill, and fell far short of the enemy, a little smoke showing the spot where it burst. The faces of officers and men brightened up at the sound. Everyone got up and began watching the movements of our troops below, as plainly visible as if but a stone's throw away, and the movements of the approaching enemy farther off. At the same instant, the sun came fully out from behind the clouds, and the clear sound of the solitary shot and the brilliance of the bright sunshine merged in a single joyous and spirited impression. End of Book Two, Chapter Six. Book Two, Chapter Seven of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Seven Two of the enemy's shots had already flown across the bridge where there was a crush. Halfway across stood Prince Nesvitsky, who had alighted from his horse and whose big body was jammed against the railings. He looked back laughing to the Cossack who stood a few steps behind him holding two horses by their bridles. Each time Prince Nesvitsky tried to move on, soldiers and carts pushed him back again, and pressed him against the railings, and all he could do was to smile. "'What a fine fellow you are, friend!' said the Cossack to a convoy soldier with a wagon, 
who was pressing onto the infantrymen who were crowded together close to his wheels and his horses. "'What a fellow! You can't wait a moment! Don't you see the general wants to pass?' But the convoyman took no notice of the word general and shouted at the soldiers who were blocking his way. "'Hi there, boys! Keep to the left! Wait a bit!' But the soldiers, crowded together shoulder to shoulder, their bayonets interlocking, moved over the bridge in a dense mass. Looking down over the rails, Prince Nesvitsky saw the rapid, noisy little waves of the ends, which, rippling and eddying round the piles of the bridge, chased each other along. Looking on the bridge, he saw equally uniform living waves of soldiers, shoulder-straps, covered shakos, knapsacks, bayonets, long muskets, and, under the shakos, faces with broad cheekbones, sunken cheeks, and listless, tired expressions, and feet that moved through the sticky mud that covered the planks of the bridge. Sometimes through the monotonous waves of men, like a fleck of white foam on the waves of the ends, an officer, in a cloak and with a type of face different from that of the men, squeezed his way along, sometimes like a chip of wood whirling in the river, and hussar on foot, an orderly, or a townsman was carried through the waves of infantry and sometimes, like a log floating down the river, an officer's or company's baggage-wagon, piled high, leather-covered, and hemmed in on all sides, moved across the bridge. "'It's as if a dam had burst,' said the Cossack hopelessly. "'Are there many more of you to come?' "'A million all but one,' replied a waggish soldier in a torn coat with a wink, and passed on, followed by another, an old man. "'If he—' he met the enemy, begins popping at the bridge now," said the old soldier dismally to a comrade. "'You'll forget to scratch yourself.' That soldier passed on, and after him came another sitting on a cart. "'Where the devil have the leg-bands been shoved to?' said an orderly, running behind the cart and fumbling in the back of it. And he also passed on with the wagon. Then came some merry soldiers who had evidently been drinking. And then, old fellow, he gives him one in the teeth with the butt-end of his gun," a soldier whose greatcoat was well tucked up said gaily, with a wide swing of his arm. "'Yes, the ham was just delicious,' answered another with a loud laugh. And they too passed on, so that Nesvitsky did not learn who had been struck on the teeth or what the ham had to do with it. "'Bah! How they scurry! He just sends a ball and they think they'll all be killed!' a sergeant was saying angrily and reproachfully. "'As it flies past me, Daddy, the ball, I mean,' said a young soldier with an enormous mouth, hardly refraining from laughing, "'I felt like dying of fright. I did, pon my word. I got that frightened,' said he, as if bragging of having been frightened. That one also passed. Then followed a cart unlike any that had gone before. It was a German cart with a pair of horses led by a German, and seemed loaded with a whole houseful of effects. A fine brindled cow with a large udder was attached to the cart behind. A woman with an unweaned baby, an old woman, and a healthy German girl with bright red cheeks were sitting on some feather-beds. Evidently these fugitives were allowed to pass by special permission. The eyes of all the soldiers turned toward the women, and while the vehicle was passing at foot-pace all the soldiers' remarks related to the two young ones. Every face bore almost the same smile, expressing unseemly thoughts about the women. "'Just see! The German sausage is making tracks, too!' "'Sell me the missus!' 
said another soldier, addressing the German, who, angry and frightened, strode energetically along with downcast eyes. See how smart she's made herself! Oh, the devils! There, Fedotov, you should be quartered on them! I have seen as much before now, mate. Where are you going? asked an infantry officer who was eating an apple, also half smiling as he looked at the handsome girl. The German closed his eyes, signifying that he did not understand. "'Take it, if you like,' said the officer, giving the girl an apple. The girl smiled and took it. Nesvitsky, like the rest of the men on the bridge, did not take his eyes off the women till they had passed. When they had gone by, the same stream of soldiers followed, with the same kind of talk, and at last all stopped. As often happens, the horses of a convoy wagon became restive at the end of the bridge, and the whole crowd had to wait. "'And why are they stopping? There's no proper order,' said the soldiers. "'Where are you shoving to? Devil take you! Can't you wait? It'll be worse if he fires the bridge. See, here's an officer jammed in, too!' Different voices were saying in the crowd, as the men looked at one another and all pressed toward the exit from the bridge. Looking down at the waters of the ends under the bridge, Nesvitsky suddenly heard a sound new to him, of something swiftly approaching, something big that splashed into the water. "'Just see where it carries to,' a soldier nearby said sternly, looking round at the sound. "'Encouraging us to get along quicker,' said another uneasily. The crowd moved on again. Nesvitsky realized that it was a cannonball. "'Hey, Cossack, my horse!' he said. Now then, you there, get out of the way! Make way!" With great difficulty he managed to get to his horse, and shouting continually he moved on. The soldiers squeezed themselves to make way for him, but again pressed on him so that they jammed his leg, and those nearest him were not to blame, for they were themselves pressed still harder from behind. "'Nesvitsky! Nesvitsky, you numbskull!' came a hoarse voice from behind him. Nesvitsky looked round and saw, some fifteen paces away but separated by the living mass of moving infantry, Vaska Denisov, red and shaggy, with his cap on the back of his black head and a cloak hanging jauntily over his shoulder. "'Tell these devils, these fiends, to let me pass!' shouted Denisov, evidently in a fit of rage. His coal-black eyes, with their bloodshot whites, glittering and rolling, as he waved his sheathed sabre in a small bare hand as red as his face. "'Ah, Vaska!' joyfully replied Nesvitsky. "'What's up with you?' "'The squadron can't pass!' shouted Vaska Denisov, showing his white teeth fiercely and spurring his black thoroughbred Arab, which twitched its ears as the bayonets touched it, and snorted, spurting white foam from his bit, trampling the planks of the bridge with his hoofs, and apparently ready to jump over the railings had his rider let him. "'What is this? They're like sheep! Just like sheep! Out of the way! Let us pass! Stop there, you devil with the cart! I'll hack you with my saber!' he shouted, actually drawing his saber from its scabbard and flourishing it. The soldiers crowded against one another with terrified faces, and Denisov joined Nesvitsky. "'How's it you're not drunk today?' said Nesvitsky, when the other had ridden up to him. "'They don't even give one time to drink,' answered Vaska Denisov. "'They keep dragging the regiment to and fro all day. If they mean to fight, let's fight!' 
but the devil knows what this is.' "'What a dandy you are today,' said Nesvitsky, looking at Denisov's new cloak and saddlecloth. Denisov smiled, took out of his sabretache a handkerchief that diffused a smell of perfume, and put it to Nesvitsky's nose. "'Of course! I'm going into action! I've shaved, washed my teeth, and scented myself!' The imposing figure of Nesvitsky, followed by his Cossack, and the determination of Denisov, who flourished his sword and shouted frantically, had such an effect that they managed to squeeze through to the farther side of the bridge and stop the infantry. Beside the bridge, Nesvitsky found the colonel to whom he had to deliver the order, and having done this, he rode back. Having cleared the way, Denisov stopped at the end of the bridge. Carelessly holding in his stallion that was neighing and pawing the ground, eager to rejoin its fellows, he watched his squadron draw nearer. Then the clang of hoofs, as of several horses galloping, resounded on the planks of the bridge, and the squadron, officers in front and men four abreast, spread across the bridge and began to emerge on his side of it. The infantry who had been stopped crowded near the bridge in the trampled mud, and gazed with that particular feeling of ill-will, estrangement, and ridicule with which troops of different arms usually encounter one another, at the clean, smart hussars who moved past them in regular order. "'Smart lads! Only fit for a fair!' said one. "'What good are they? They're led about just for show!' remarked another. "'Don't kick up the dust, you infantry!' jested an hussar, whose prancing horse had splashed mud over some foot-soldiers. "'I'd like to put you on a two-days' march with a knapsack. Your fine cords would soon get a bit rubbed,' said an infantryman, wiping the mud off his face with his sleeve. "'Perched up there, you're more like a bird than a man.' "'There now, Zekin, they ought to put you on a horse. You'd look fine,' said a corporal, chafing a thin little soldier, who bent under the weight of his knapsack. "'Take a stick between your legs. That'll suit you for a horse!' the hussar shouted back. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven Book Two, Chapter Eight of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Eight. The last of the infantry hurriedly crossed the bridge, squeezing together as they approached it, as if passing through a funnel. At last the baggage-wagons had all crossed, the crush was less, and the last battalion came onto the bridge. Only Denisov's squadron of hussars remained on the farther side of the bridge facing the enemy, who could be seen from the hill on the opposite bank, but was not yet visible from the bridge for the horizon as seen from the valley through which the river flowed was formed by the rising ground only half a mile away. At the foot of the hill lay wasteland over which a few groups of our Cossack scouts were moving. Suddenly, on the road at the top of the high ground, artillery and troops in blue uniform were seen. These were the French. A group of Cossack scouts retired down the hill at a trot. All the officers and men of Denisov's squadron, though they tried to talk of other things and to look in other directions, thought only of what was there on the hilltop, and kept constantly looking at the patches appearing on the skyline, which they knew to be the enemy's troops. 
The weather had cleared again since noon, and the sun was descending brightly upon the Danube and the dark hills around it. It was calm, and at intervals the bugle calls and the shouts of the enemy could be heard from the hill. There was no one now between the squadron and the enemy except a few scattered skirmishers. An empty space of some seven hundred yards was all that separated them. The enemy ceased firing, and that stern, threatening, inaccessible, and intangible line which separates two hostile armies was all the more clearly felt. One step beyond that boundary line which resembles the line dividing the living from the dead lies uncertainty, suffering, and death. And what is there? Who is there? There, beyond that field, that tree, that roof lit up by the sun. No one knows, but one wants to know. You fear, and yet long to cross that line, and know that sooner or later it must be crossed, and you will have to find out what is there, just as you will inevitably have to learn what lies the other side of death. But you are strong, healthy, cheerful, and excited and are surrounded by other such excitedly animated and healthy men. So thinks, or at any rate feels, anyone who comes in sight of the enemy, and that feeling gives a particular glamour and glad keenness of impression to everything that takes place at such moments. On the high ground where the enemy was, the smoke of a cannon rose, and a ball flew whistling over the heads of the Hussar squadron. The officers who had been standing together rode off to their places. The hussars began carefully aligning their horses. Silence fell on the whole squadron. All were looking at the enemy in front and at the squadron commander, awaiting the word of command. A second and third cannon-ball flew past. Evidently they were firing at the hussars, but the balls with rapid rhythmic whistle flew over the heads of the horsemen and fell somewhere beyond them. The hussars did not look round, but at the sound of each shot as at the word of command, the whole squadron, with its rows of faces so alike yet so different, holding its breath while the ball flew past, rose in the stirrups and sank back again. The soldiers, without turning their heads, glanced at one another, curious to see their comrades' impression. Every face, from Denisov's to that of the bugler, showed one common expression of conflict, irritation, and excitement around chin and mouth. The quartermaster frowned, looking at the soldiers as if threatening to punish them. Cadet Mironov ducked every time a ball flew past. Rostov, on the left flank, mounted on his rook, a handsome horse despite its game leg, had the happy air of a schoolboy called up before a large audience for an examination in which he feels sure he will distinguish himself. He was glancing at everyone with a clear, bright expression, as if asking them to notice how calmly he sat under fire but despite himself, on his face too, that same indication of something new and stern showed round the mouth. "'Who's that curtsying there? Cadet Mironov! That's not white! Look at me!' cried Denisov, who, unable to keep still on one spot, kept turning his horse in front of the squadron. The black, hairy, snub-nosed face of Vaska Denisov, and his whole short sturdy figure with the sinewy hairy hand and stumpy fingers in which he held the hilt of his naked sabre, looked just as it usually did, especially toward evening when he had emptied his second bottle. He was only redder than usual. With his shaggy head thrown back like birds when they drink, pressing his spurs mercilessly into the sides of his good horse, Bedouin, and sitting as though falling backwards in the saddle, 
he galloped to the other flank of the squadron and shouted in a hoarse voice to the men to look to their pistols. He rode up to Kirsten. The staff captain on his broad-backed, steady mare came at a walk to meet him. His face, with its long moustache, was serious as always, only his eyes were brighter than usual. "'Well, what about it?' said he to Denisov. "'It won't come to a fight. You'll see. We shall retire.' "'The devil only knows what they're about,' muttered Denisov. "'Ah, Wostov!' he cried, noticing the cadet's bright face. "'You've got it at last!' and he smiled approvingly, evidently pleased with the cadet. Rostov felt perfectly happy. Just then the commander appeared on the bridge. Denisov galloped up to him. "'Your Excellency, let us attack them! I'll drive them off!' "'Attack, indeed,' said the colonel in a bored voice, puckering up his face as if driving off a troublesome fly. "'And why are you stopping here? Don't you see the skirmishers are retreating?' Lead the squadron back." The squadron crossed the bridge and drew out of range of fire without having lost a single man. The second squadron that had been in the front line followed them across, and the last Cossacks quitted the farther side of the river. The two Pavlograd squadrons, having crossed the bridge, retired up the hill one after the other. Their colonel, Karl Bogdanich Schubert, came up to Denisov's squadron and rode at a footpace not far from Rostov without taking any notice of him, although they were now meeting for the first time since their encounter concerning Telyanin. Rostov, feeling that he was at the front and in the power of a man toward whom he now admitted that he had been to blame, did not lift his eyes from the colonel's athletic back, his nape covered with light hair, and his red neck. It seemed to Rostov that Bogdanich was only pretending not to notice him, and that his whole aim now was to test the cadet's courage so he drew himself up and looked around him merrily. Then it seemed to him that Bogdanich rode so near in order to show him his courage. Next he thought that his enemy would send the squadron on a desperate attack just to punish him, Rostov. Then he imagined how, after the attack, Bogdanich would come up to him as he lay wounded and would magnanimously extend the hand of reconciliation. The high-shouldered figure of Zerkov, familiar to the Pavlograds as he had but recently left their regiment, rode up to the colonel. After his dismissal from headquarters, Zerkov had not remained in the regiment, saying he was not such a fool as to slave at the front when he could get more rewards by doing nothing on the staff, and had succeeded in attaching himself as an orderly officer to Prince Bagradian. He now came to his former chief with an order from the commander of the rear guard. Colonel he said, addressing Rostov's enemy with an air of gloomy gravity and glancing round at his comrades. "'There is an order to stop and fire the bridge.' "'An order to who?' asked the colonel morosely. "'I don't myself know to who,' replied the cornet in a serious tone. "'But the prince told me to go and tell the colonel that the hussars must return quickly and fire the bridge.' Zerkov was followed by an officer of the suite, who rode up to the colonel of hussars with the same order. After him, the stout Nesvitsky came galloping up on a Cossack horse that could scarcely carry his weight. "'How's this, colonel?' he shouted as he approached. "'I told you to fire the bridge, and now someone has gone and blundered. They are all beside themselves over there, and one can't make anything out.' 
The colonel deliberately stopped the regiment and turned to Nesvitsky. "'You spoke to me of inflammable material,' said he. "'But you said nothing about firing it.' "'But, my dear sir,' said Nesvitsky as he drew up, taking off his cap and smoothing his hair wet with perspiration with his plump hand, "'wasn't I telling you to fire the bridge when inflammable material had been put in position?' I am not your dear sir, Mr. Staff Officer, and you did not tell me to burn the bridge. I know the service, and it is my habit orders strictly to obey. You said the bridge would be burned, but who would burn it I could not know by the Holy Spirit." "'Ah, that's always the way,' said Nitsvitsky with a wave of the hand. "'How did you get here?' said he, turning to Zerkov. "'On the same business. But you are damp. Let me ring you out." "'You were saying, Mr. Staff Officer,' continued the Colonel, in an offended tone. "'Colonel,' interrupted the officer of the suite, "'you must be quick, or the enemy will bring up his guns to use grape-shot.' The Colonel looked silently at the officer of the suite, at the stout staff officer, and at Zerkov, and he frowned. "'I will the bridge fire he said in a solemn tone, as if to announce that in spite of all the unpleasantness he had to endure, he would still do the right thing. Striking his horse with his long muscular legs as if it were to blame for everything, the colonel moved forward and ordered the second squadron, that in which Rostov was serving under Denisov, to return to the bridge. "'There, it's just as I thought,' said Rostov to himself. "'He wishes to test me.' His heart contracted, and the blood rushed to his face. "'Let him see whether I am a coward,' he thought. Again, on all the bright faces of the squadron, the serious expression appeared that they had worn when under fire. Rostov watched his enemy, the colonel, closely. To find in his face confirmation of his own conjecture, but the colonel did not once glance at Rostov, and looked as he always did when at the front, solemn and stern. Then came the word of command. "'Look sharp! Look sharp!' several voices repeated around him. Their sabres catching in the bridles and their spurs jingling, the hussars hastily dismounted, not knowing what they were to do. The men were crossing themselves. Rostov no longer looked at the colonel, he had no time. He was afraid of falling behind the hussars, so much afraid that his heart stood still. His hand trembled as he gave his horse to an orderly's charge, and he felt the blood rush to his heart with a thud. Denisov rode past him, leaning back and shouting something. Rostov saw nothing but the hussars running all around him, their spurs catching and their sabres clattering. "'Stretchers!' shouted someone behind him. Rostov did not think what this call for stretchers meant. He ran on, trying only to be ahead of the others. But just at the bridge, not looking at the ground, he came on some sticky, trodden mud, stumbled, and fell on his hands. The others outstripped him. "'At both sides, Captain!' he heard the voice of the colonel, who, having ridden ahead, had pulled up his horse near the bridge with a triumphant, cheerful face. Rostov, wiping his muddy hands on his breeches, looked at his enemy, and was about to run on, thinking that the farther he went to the front the better. But Bogdanich, without looking at or recognizing Rostov, shouted to him, "'Who's that running on the middle of the bridge? To the right! Come back, cadet!' he cried angrily, and turning to Denisov, 
who, showing off his courage, had ridden on to the planks of the bridge. "'Why run risks, Captain? You should dismount,' he said. "'Oh, every bullet has its billet,' answered Vaska Denisov, turning in his saddle. Meanwhile Nesvitsky, Zerkov, and the officer of the suite were standing together out of range of the shots, watching, now the small group of men with yellow shackles, dark green jackets braided with cord and blue riding-breeches, who were swarming near the bridge, and then at what was approaching in the distance from the opposite side, the blue uniforms and groups with horses, easily recognizable as artillery. Will they burn the bridge or not? Who'll get there first? Will they get there and fire the bridge, or will the French get within grape-shot range and wipe them out? These were the questions each man of the troops on the high ground above the bridge involuntarily asked himself with a sinking heart, watching the bridge and the hussars in the bright evening light and the blue tunics advancing from the other side with their bayonets and guns. "'Ugh! The hussars will get it hot,' said Nesvitsky. "'They are within grape-shot range now.' He shouldn't have taken so many men," said the officer of the suite. "'True enough,' answered Nesvitsky. Two smart fellows could have done the job just as well.' "'Ah, Your Excellency,' put in Zerkov, his eyes fixed on the hussars, but still with that naive air that made it impossible to know whether he was speaking in jest or in earnest. "'Ah, Your Excellency, how you look at things! Send two men!' And who then would give us the Vladimir medal and ribbon? But now, even if they do get peppered, the squadron may be recommended for honors, and he may get a ribbon. Our Bogdanich knows how things are done. There now, said the officer of the suite, that's grape shot. He pointed to the French guns, the limbers of which were being detached and hurriedly removed. On the French side, amid the groups with cannon, a cloud of smoke appeared then a second and a third almost simultaneously, and at the moment when the first report was heard a fourth was seen, then two reports, one after another, and a third. "'Oh, oh!' groaned Nesvitsky, as if in fierce pain, seizing the officer of the suite by the arm. "'Look, a man has fallen, fallen, fallen! Two, I think.' "'If I were Tsar, I would never go to war,' said Nesvitsky, turning away. The French guns were hastily reloaded. The infantry in their blue uniforms advanced toward the bridge at a run. Smoke appeared again, but at irregular intervals, and grape-shot cracked and rattled onto the bridge. But this time Nesvitsky could not see what was happening there, as a dense cloud of smoke arose from it. The hussars had succeeded in setting it on fire, and the French batteries were now firing at them no longer to hinder them, but because the guns were trained and there was something to fire at. The French had time to fire three rounds of grape-shot before the hussars got back to their horses. Two were misdirected and the shot went too high, but the last round fell in the midst of a group of hussars and knocked three of them over. Rostov, absorbed by his relations with Bogdanich, had paused on the bridge not knowing what to do. There was no one to hew down as he had always imagined battles to himself, nor could he help to fire the bridge because he had not brought any burning straw with him like the other soldiers. He stood looking about him, when suddenly he heard a rattle on the bridge, as if nuts were being spilt, and the hussar nearest to him fell against the rails with a groan. Rostov ran up to him with the others. Again someone shouted, "'Stretchers!' 
Four men seized the hussar and began lifting him. "'Oh, for Christ's sake, let me alone!' cried the wounded man, but still he was lifted and laid on the stretcher. Nicholas Rostov turned away, and, as if searching for something, gazed into the distance, at the waters of the Danube, at the sky, and at the sun. How beautiful the sky looked! How blue, how calm, and how deep! How bright and glorious was the setting sun! With what soft glitter the waters of the distant Danube shone! And fairer still were the faraway blue mountains beyond the river, the nunnery, the mysterious gorges, and the pine forests veiled in the midst of their summits. There was peace and happiness. I should wish for nothing else, nothing, if only I were there," thought Rostov. In myself alone, and in that sunshine, there is so much happiness. But here, groans, suffering, fear, and this uncertainty and hurry. There they are shouting again, and again are all running back somewhere, and I shall run with them. And it, death, is here above me and around. Another instant, and I shall never again see the sun, this water, that gorge." At that instant the sun began to hide behind the clouds, and other stretchers came into view before Rostov. And the fear of death and of the stretchers, and love of the sun and of life, all merged into one feeling of sickening agitation. "'O oh Lord God, Thou who art in that heaven, say, forgive and protect me!' Rostov whispered. The hussars ran back to the men who held their horses. Their voices sounded louder and calmer. The stretchers disappeared from sight. "'Well, friend, so you've smelt powder!' shouted Vaska Denisov just above his ear. "'It's all over, but I am a coward. Yes, a coward!' thought Rostov, and sighing deeply, he took Rook his horse, which stood resting one foot from the orderly and began to mount. Was that grape-shot?" he asked Denisov. "'Yes, and no mistake!' cried Denisov. "'You work like regular bricks, and it's nasty work! An attack's pleasant work! Hacking away at the dogs! But this sort of thing is the very devil, with them shooting at you like a target!' And Denisov rode up to a group that had stopped near Rostov, composed of the colonel, Nesvitsky, Zerkov, and the officer from the suite. Well, it seems that no one has noticed," thought Rostov. And this was true. No one had taken any notice, for everyone knew the sensation which the cadet under fire for the first time had experienced. "'Here's something for you to report,' said Zerkov. "'See if I don't get promoted to a sub-lieutenancy.' "'Inform the prince that I, the bridge, fired,' said the colonel triumphantly and gaily and if he asks about the losses?" "'A trifle,' said the colonel in his bass voice. Two hussars wounded, and one knocked out,' he added, unable to restrain a happy smile, and pronouncing the phrase knocked out with ringing distinctness. End of Book Two, Chapter Eight Book Two, Chapter Nine of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Nine. 
pursued by the French army of a hundred thousand men under the command of Bonaparte, encountering a population that was unfriendly to it, losing confidence in its allies, suffering from shortness of supplies, and compelled to act under conditions of war unlike anything that had been foreseen, the Russian army of thirty-five thousand men commanded by Kutuzov was hurriedly retreating along the Danube, stopping where overtaken by the enemy and fighting rearguard actions only as far as necessary to enable it to retreat without losing its heavy equipment. There had been actions at Lombach, Amstetten, and Melk, but despite the courage and endurance, acknowledged even by the enemy, with which the Russians fought, the only consequence of these actions was a yet more rapid retreat. Austrian troops that had escaped capture at Ulm, and had joined Kutuzov at Brunau, now separated from the Russian army, and Kutuzov was left with only his own weak and exhausted forces. The defense of Vienna was no longer to be thought of. Instead of an offensive, the plan of which, carefully prepared in accord with the modern science of strategics, had been handed to Kutuzov when he was in Vienna by the Austrian Hofkriegsrath, the sole and almost unattainable aim remaining for him was to effect a junction with the forces that were advancing from Russia, without losing his army, as Mack had done at Ulm. On the 28th of October, Kutuzov with his army crossed to the left bank of the Danube, and took up a position for the first time with the river between himself and the main body of the French. On the 30th, he attacked Mortier's division which was on the left bank and broke it up. In this action, for the first time, trophies were taken—banners, cannon, and two enemy generals. For the first time, after a fortnight's retreat, the Russian troops had halted, and after a fight had not only held the field, but had repulsed the French. Though the troops were ill-clad, exhausted, and had lost a third of their number in killed, wounded, sick, and stragglers, though a number of sick and wounded had been abandoned on the other side of the Danube, with a letter in which Kutuzov entrusted them to the humanity of the enemy, and though the big hospitals and the houses in Krems converted into military hospitals could no longer accommodate all the sick and wounded, yet the stand made at Krems and the victory over Mortier raised the spirits of the army considerably. Throughout the whole army, and at headquarters, most joyful though erroneous rumors were rife of the imaginary approach of columns from Russia, of some victory gained by the Austrians, and of the retreat of the frightened Bonaparte. Prince Andrew during the battle had been in attendance on the Austrian General Schmidt, who was killed in the action. His horse had been wounded under him, and his own arm slightly grazed by a bullet. As a mark of the Commander-in-Chief's special favor, he was sent with the news of this victory to the Austrian court, now no longer at Vienna, which was threatened by the French, but at Brunn. Despite his apparently delicate build, Prince Andrew could endure physical fatigue far better than many very muscular men. And on the night of the battle, having arrived at Krems excited but not weary, with dispatches from Dokturov to Kutuzov, he was sent immediately with a special dispatch to Brunn. To be so sent meant not only a reward, but an important step toward promotion. The night was dark but starry. The road showed black in the snow that had fallen the previous day, the day of the battle. Reviewing his impressions of the recent battle, picturing pleasantly to himself the impressions his news of a victory would create, or recalling the send-off given him by the commander-in-chief and his fellow officers, 
Prince Andrew was galloping along in a post-chase enjoying the feelings of a man who has at length begun to attain a long-desired happiness. As soon as he closed his eyes, his ears seemed filled with the rattle of the wheels and the sensation of victory. Then he began to imagine that the Russians were running away and that he himself was killed, but he quickly roused himself with a feeling of joy, as if learning afresh that this was not so, but that on the contrary the French had run away. He again recalled all the details of the victory and his own calm courage during the battle, and feeling reassured, he dozed off. The dark starry night was followed by a bright cheerful morning. The snow was thawing in the sunshine, the horses galloped quickly, and on both sides of the road were forests of different kinds, fields and villages. At one of the post-stations he overtook a convoy of Russian wounded. The Russian officer in charge of the transport lolled back in the front cart, shouting and scolding a soldier with coarse abuse. In each of the long German carts six or more pale, dirty bandaged men were being jolted over the stony road. Some of them were talking, he heard Russian words, others were eating bread. The more severely wounded looked silently, with the languid interest of sick children, at the envoy hurrying past them. Prince Andrew told his driver to stop, and asked a soldier in what action they had been wounded. "'Day before yesterday, on the Danube,' answered the soldier. Prince Andrew took out his purse and gave the soldier three gold pieces. "'That's for them all.' he said to the officer, who came up. "'Get well soon, lads,' he continued, turning to the soldiers. "'There's plenty to do still.' "'What news, sir?' asked the officer, evidently anxious to start a conversation. "'Good news. Go on,' he shouted to the driver, and they galloped on. It was already quite dark when Prince Andrew rattled over the paved streets of Brune, and found himself surrounded by high buildings, the lights of shops, houses and street-lamps, fine carriages, and all that atmosphere of a large and active town, which is always so attractive to a soldier after camp life. Despite his rapid journey and sleepless night, Prince Andrew, when he drove up to the palace, felt even more vigorous and alert than he had done the day before. Only his eyes gleamed feverishly, and his thoughts followed one another with extraordinary clearness and rapidity. He again vividly recalled the details of the battle no longer dim, but definite and in the concise form in which he imagined himself stating them to the Emperor Francis. He vividly imagined the casual questions that might be put to him, and the answers he would give. He expected to be at once presented to the Emperor. At the chief entrance to the palace, however, an official came running out to meet him, and learning that he was a special messenger, led him to another entrance. "'To the right from the corridor, Oyer Hockeborn. There you will find the adjutant on duty," said the official. He will conduct you to the Minister of War. The adjutant on duty, meeting Prince Andrew, asked him to wait, and went in to the Minister of War. Five minutes later he returned and, bowing with particular courtesy, ushered Prince Andrew before him along a corridor to the cabinet where the Minister of War was at work. The adjutant, by his elaborate courtesy, appeared to wish to ward off any attempt at familiarity on the part of the Russian messenger. Prince Andrew's joyous feeling was considerably weakened as he approached the door of the minister's room. He felt offended, 
and without his noticing it the feeling of offence immediately turned into one of disdain which was quite uncalled for. His fertile mind instantly suggested to him a point of view which gave him a right to despise the adjutant and the minister. Away from the smell of powder, they probably think it easy to gain victories, he thought. His eyes narrowed disdainfully. He entered the room of the Minister of War with peculiarly deliberate steps. This feeling of disdain was heightened when he saw the minister seated at a large table, reading some papers and making pencil notes on them, and for the first two or three minutes taking no notice of his arrival. A wax candle stood at each side of the minister's bent bald head with its gray temples. He went on reading to the end, without raising his eyes at the opening of the door or the sound of footsteps. "'Take this and deliver it,' said he to his adjutant, handing him the papers and still taking no notice of the special messenger. Prince Andrew felt that either the actions of Kutuzov's army interested the Minister of War less than any of the other matters he was concerned with, or he wanted to give the Russian special messenger that impression. But that is a matter of perfect indifference to me, he thought. The minister drew the remaining papers together, arranged them evenly, and then raised his head. He had an intellectual and distinctive head, but the instant he turned to Prince Andrew, the firm, intelligent expression on his face changed in a way evidently deliberate and habitual to him. His face took on this stupid, artificial smile, which does not even attempt to hide its artificiality, of a man who is continually receiving many petitioners one after another. "'From General Field Marshal Kutuzov?' he asked. "'I hope it is good news. There has been an encounter with Mortier. A victory? It was high time!' He took the dispatch which was addressed to him and began to read it with a mournful expression. "'Oh, my God! My God! Schmidt!' he exclaimed in German. "'What a calamity! What a calamity!' Having glanced through the dispatch, he laid it on the table and looked at Prince Andrew, evidently considering something. "'Ah, what a calamity! You say the affair was decisive? But Mortier is not captured.' Again he pondered. "'I am very glad you have brought good news, though Schmidt's death is a heavy price to pay for the victory. His Majesty will no doubt wish to see you, but not to-day. I thank you. You must have a rest. Be at the levy to-morrow after the parade. However, I will let you know." The stupid smile which had left his face while he was speaking reappeared. "'Au revoir. Thank you very much. His Majesty will probably desire to see you,' he added, bowing his head. When Prince Andrew left the palace, he felt that all the interest and happiness the victory had afforded him had been now left in the indifferent hands of the Minister of War and the polite adjutant. The whole tenor of his thoughts instantaneously changed. The battle seemed the memory of a remote event long past. End of Book Two, Chapter Nine Book Two, Chapter Ten of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Ten. Prince Andrew stayed at Brune with Bilibin, 
a Russian acquaintance of his in the diplomatic service. "'Ah, my dear Prince, I could not have a more welcome visitor,' said Belieben as he came out to meet Prince Andrew. "'Franz, put the Prince's things in my bedroom,' said he to the servant who was ushering Bolkonsky in. "'So you're a messenger of victory, eh? Splendid! And I am sitting here ill, as you see.' After washing and dressing, Prince Andrew came into the diplomat's luxurious study and sat down to the dinner prepared for him. Belieben settled down comfortably beside the fire. After his journey and the campaign, during which he had been deprived of all the comforts of cleanliness and all the refinements of life, Prince Andrew felt a pleasant sense of repose among luxurious surroundings, such as he had been accustomed to from childhood. Besides, it was pleasant, after his reception by the Austrians, to speak, if not in Russian, for they were speaking French, at least with a Russian who would, he supposed, share the general Russian antipathy to the Austrians, which was then particularly strong. Belieben was a man of thirty-five, a bachelor, and of the same circle as Prince Andrew. They had known each other previously in Petersburg, but had become more intimate when Prince Andrew was in Vienna with Kutuzov. Just as Prince Andrew was a young man who gave promise of rising high in the military profession, so to an even greater extent Belieben gave promise of rising in his diplomatic career. He was still a young man, but no longer a young diplomat, as he had entered the service at the age of sixteen, had been in Paris and Copenhagen, and now held a rather important post in Vienna. Both the foreign minister and our ambassador in Vienna knew him and valued him. He was not one of those many diplomats who are esteemed because they have certain negative qualities, avoid doing certain things and speak French. He was one of those who, liking work, knew how to do it, and despite his indolence would sometimes spend a whole night at his writing-table. He worked well whatever the import of his work. It was not the question what for, but the question how that interested him. What the diplomatic matter might be, he did not care but it gave him great pleasure to prepare a circular, memorandum, or report skillfully, pointedly, and elegantly. Belieben's services were valued not only for what he wrote, but also for his skill in dealing and conversing with those in the highest spheres. Belieben liked conversation as he liked work, only when it could be made elegantly witty. In society he always awaited an opportunity to say something striking, and took part in a conversation only when that was possible. His conversation was always sprinkled with wittily original, finished phrases of general interest. These sayings were prepared in the inner laboratory of his mind in a portable form, as if intentionally so that insignificant society people might carry them from drawing-room to drawing-room. And, in fact, Belieben's witticisms were hawked about in the Viennese drawing-rooms, and often had an influence on matters considered important. His thin, worn, sallow face was covered with deep wrinkles, which always looked as clean and well-washed as the tips of one's fingers after a Russian bath. The movements of these wrinkles formed the principal play of expression on his face. Now his forehead would pucker into deep folds and his eyebrows were lifted, then his eyebrows would descend and deep wrinkles would crease his cheeks. His small, deep-set eyes always twinkled and looked out straight. "'Well, now, tell me about your exploits,' said he. Belkonsky, very modestly without once mentioning himself, described the engagement and his reception by the Minister of War. 
they received me and my news as one receives a dog in a game of skittles," said he in conclusion. Believin smiled and the wrinkles on his face disappeared. Cependant, mon cher, he remarked, examining his nails from a distance and puckering the skin above his left eye, malgré la haute estime que je professe pour the orthodox Russian army, j'avoue que votre victoire n'est pas de plus victorieuse. But, my dear fellow, with all my respect for the orthodox Russian army, I must say that your victory was not particularly victorious. He went on talking in this way in French, uttering only those words in Russian on which he wished to put a contemptuous emphasis. Come now, you with all your forces fall on the unfortunate Mortier and his one division, and even then Mortier slips through your fingers. Where's the victory? But seriously, said Prince Andrew, we can at any rate say without boasting that it was a little better than at home. Why didn't you capture one, just one marshal for us? Because not everything happens as one expects, or with the smoothness of a parade. We had expected, as I told you, to get at their rear by seven in the morning, but had not reached it by five in the afternoon. And why didn't you do it at seven in the morning? You ought to have been there at seven in the morning," returned Belieben with a smile. You ought to have been there at seven in the morning. Why did you not succeed in impressing on Bonaparte by diplomatic methods that he had better leave Genoa alone?" retorted Prince Andrew in the same tone. I know, interrupted Belieben, you're thinking it's very easy to take Marshall sitting on a sofa by the fire. That is true. But still, why didn't you capture him? So don't be surprised if not only the Minister of War, but also His Most August Majesty the Emperor and King Francis is not much delighted by your victory. Even I, a poor secretary of the Russian Embassy, do not feel any need in token of my joy to give my France a thaler, or let him go with his Liebchen to the Prater. True, we have no Prater here." He looked straight at Prince Andrew, and suddenly unwrinkled his forehead. It is now my turn to ask you why, mon cher," said Bolkonsky. I confess, I do not understand. Perhaps there are diplomatic subtleties here beyond my feeble intelligence, but I can't make it out. Mac loses a whole army. The Archduke Ferdinand and the Archduke Karl give no signs of life and make blunder after blunder. Kutuzov alone at last gains a real victory, destroying the spell of the invincibility of the French and the Minister of War does not even care to hear the details. That's just it, my dear fellow. You see, it's hurrah for the Tsar, for Russia, for the Orthodox Greek faith. All that is beautiful, but what do we, I mean the Austrian court, care for your victories? Bring us nice news of a victory by the Archduke Karl or Ferdinand, one Archduke's as good as another, as you know and even if it is only over a fire-brigade of Bonaparte's, that will be another story, and will fire off some cannon. But this sort of thing seems done on purpose to vex us. The Archduke Karl does nothing, the Archduke Ferdinand disgraces himself. You abandon Vienna, give up its defence, as much as to say, Heaven is with us, but Heaven help you in your capital. The one general whom we all loved, Schmidt, you exposed to a bullet and then you congratulate us on the victory. Admit that more irritating news than yours could not have been conceived. 
It's as if it had been done on purpose, on purpose. Besides, suppose you did gain a brilliant victory, even if the Archduke Karl gained a victory, what effect would that have on the general course of events? It's too late now when Vienna is occupied by the French army. What? Occupied? Vienna occupied? Not only occupied, but Bonaparte is at Schönbrunn, and the Count, our dear Count Verbna, goes to him for orders. After the fatigues and impressions of the journey, his reception, and especially after having dined, Bolkonsky felt that he could not take in the full significance of the words he heard. Count Lichtenfels was here this morning, Belieben continued, and showed me a letter in which the parade of the French in Vienna was fully described. Prince Marat et tout le tremblement. You see that your victory is not a matter for great rejoicing, and that you can't be received as a savior. Really, I don't care about that. I don't care at all," said Prince Andrew, beginning to understand that his news of the battle before Krems was really of small importance in view of such events as the fall of Austria's capital. How is it Vienna was taken? What of the bridge, and its celebrated bridgehead, and Prince Auersburg? We heard reports that Prince Auersburg was defending Vienna," he said. Prince Auersburg is on this, on our side of the river, and is defending us, doing it very badly, I think, but still he is defending us. But Vienna is on the other side. No, the bridge has not yet been taken, and I hope it will not be, for it is mine and orders have been given to blow it up. Otherwise we should long ago have been in the mountains of Bohemia and you and your army would have spent a bad quarter of an hour between two fires. But still this does not mean that the campaign is over," said Prince Andrew. Well, I think it is. The bigwigs here think so, too, but they daren't say so. It will be as I said at the beginning of the campaign. It won't be your skirmishing at Durenstein, or gunpowder at all that will decide the matter, but those who devised it said Belieben, quoting one of his own mots, releasing the wrinkles on his forehead and pausing. The only question is what will become of the meeting between the Emperor Alexander and the King of Prussia in Berlin. If Prussia joins the Allies, Austria's hand will be forced and there will be war. If not, it is merely a question of settling where the preliminaries of the new Campo Formio are to be drawn up. What an extraordinary genius! Prince Andrew suddenly exclaimed, clenching his small hand and striking the table with it. And what luck the man has! Buonaparte? said Belieben inquiringly, puckering up his forehead to indicate that he was about to say something witty. Buonaparte? he repeated, accentuating the U. I think, however, now that he lays down laws for Austria at Schönbrunn, il faut lui faire grâce de lui. We must let him off the U. I shall certainly adopt an innovation and call him simply Bonaparte. But joking apart, said Prince Andrew, do you really think the campaign is over? This is what I think. Austria has been made a fool of, and she is not used to it. She will retaliate. And she has been fooled in the first place because her provinces have been pillaged. They say the Holy Russian Army loots terribly. Her army is destroyed, her capital taken, and all this for the beau fine eyes, of his Sardinian majesty. And therefore, 
this is between ourselves, I instinctively feel that we are being deceived. My instinct tells me of negotiations with France and projects for peace, a secret peace concluded separately. Impossible! cried Prince Andrew. That would be too base! If we live, we shall see, replied Bilibin, his face again becoming smooth as a sign that the conversation was at an end. When Prince Andrew reached the room prepared for him and lay down in a clean shirt on the feather bed with its warmed and fragrant pillows, he felt that the battle of which he had brought tidings was far, far away from him. The alliance with Prussia, Austria's treachery, Bonaparte's new triumph, tomorrow's levy and parade, and the audience with the Emperor Francis occupied his thoughts. He closed his eyes and immediately a sound of cannonading, of musketry and the rattling of carriage-wheels seemed to fill his ears, and now again, drawn out in a thin line, the musketeers were descending the hill, the French were firing, and he felt his heart palpitating as he rode forward beside Schmidt with the bullets merrily whistling all around, and he experienced tenfold the joy of living, as he had not done since childhood. He woke up. Yes, that all happened," he said, and, smiling happily to himself like a child, he fell into a deep, youthful slumber. End of Book Two, Chapter Ten Book Two, Chapter Eleven of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Eleven. Next day he woke late. Recalling his recent impressions, the first thought that came into his mind was that today he had to be presented to the Emperor Francis. He remembered the Minister of War, the polite Austrian adjutant, Belieben, and last night's conversation. Having dressed for his attendance at court in full parade uniform, which he had not worn for a long time, he went into Belieben's study fresh, animated, and handsome, with his hand bandaged. In the study were four gentlemen of the diplomatic corps. With Prince Ippolit Kuragin, who was a secretary to the embassy, Bolkonsky was already acquainted. Belieben introduced him to the others. The gentlemen assembled at Belieben's were young, wealthy, gay society men, who here, as in Vienna, formed a special set, which Belieben, their leader, called Les Notes. Ours. This set, consisting almost exclusively of diplomats, evidently had its own interests, which had nothing to do with war or politics, but related to high society, to certain women, and to the official side of the service. These gentlemen received Prince Andrew as one of themselves, an honor they did not extend to many. From politeness and to start conversation, they asked him a few questions about the army and the battle, and then the talk went off into merry jests and gossip. But the best of it was, said one telling of the misfortune of a fellow diplomat, that the Chancellor told him flatly that his appointment to London was a promotion, and that he was so to regard it. Can you fancy the figure he cut? But the worst of it, gentlemen, I am giving Karagin away to you, is that that man suffers, and this Don Juan wicked fellow is taking advantage of it. 
Prince Hippolyte was lolling in a lounge-chair with his legs over its arm. He began to laugh. "'Tell me about that,' he said. "'Oh, you Don Juan, you serpent!' cried several voices. "'You Balkonsky don't know,' said Belieben, turning to Prince Andrew, "'that all the atrocities of the French army—I nearly said of the Russian army—are nothing compared to what this man has been doing among the women.' La femme et la compagnie de l'homme. Woman is man's companion, announced Prince Hippolyte, and began looking through a lorgnette at his elevated legs. Belieben and the rest of ours burst out laughing in Hippolyte's face, and Prince Andrew saw that Hippolyte, of whom, he had to admit, he had almost been jealous on his wife's account, was the butt of this set. Oh, I must give you a treat, Belieben whispered to Bolkonsky. Kuragin is exquisite when he discusses politics. You should see his gravity." He sat down beside Hippolyte and, wrinkling his forehead, began talking to him about politics. Prince Andrew and the others gathered round these two. "'The Berlin cabinet cannot express a feeling of alliance,' began Hippolyte, gazing round with importance at the others, "'without expressing, as in its last note, you understand. Besides—' unless His Majesty the Emperor derogates from the principle of our alliance. Wait, I have not finished," he said to Prince Andrew, seizing him by the arm. I believe that intervention will be stronger than non-intervention. And—he paused—finally, one cannot impute the non-receipt of our dispatch of November 18. That is how it will end. And he released Bolkonsky's arm to indicate that he had now quite finished. Demosthenes, I know thee by the pebble thou secretest in thy golden mouth," said Belieben, and the mop of hair on his head moved with satisfaction. Everybody laughed, and Hippolyte louder than anyone. He was evidently distressed, and breathed painfully, but could not restrain the wild laughter that convulsed his usually impassive features. "'Well, now, gentlemen,' said Belieben. Bolkonsky is my guest in this house, and in Brune itself. I want to entertain him as far as I can, with all the pleasures of life here. If we were in Vienna it would be easy, but here, in this wretched Moravian hold, it is more difficult, and I beg you all to help me. Brune's attractions must be shown him. You can undertake the theatre, I society, and you, Hippolyte, of course, the women." We must let him see Amelie. She's exquisite," said one of ours, kissing his fingertips. In general, we must turn this bloodthirsty soldier to more humane interests," said Belieben. I shall scarcely be able to avail myself of your hospitality, gentlemen. It is already time for me to go," replied Prince Andrew, looking at his watch. Where to? To the Emperor. Oh, oh, oh! Well, au revoir, Bolkonsky. Au revoir, Prince. Come back early to dinner," cried several voices. We'll take you in hand. When speaking to the Emperor, try as far as you can to praise the way that provisions are supplied and the routes indicated," said Belieben, accompanying him to the hall. I should like to speak well of them, but as far as I know the facts, I can't," replied Bolkonsky, smiling. Well. Talk as much as you can, anyway. He has a passion for giving audiences, but he does not like talking himself, and can't do it, as you will see. 
End of Book Two, Chapter Eleven. Book Two, Chapter Twelve of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Twelve. At the levee, Prince Andrew stood among the Austrian officers as he had been told to, and the Emperor Francis merely looked fixedly into his face and just nodded to him with his long head. But after it was over, the adjutant he had seen the previous day ceremoniously informed Bolkonsky that the Emperor desired to give him an audience. The Emperor Francis received him standing in the middle of the room. Before the conversation began, Prince Andrew was struck by the fact that the Emperor seemed confused and blushed as if not knowing what to say. "'Tell me, when did the battle begin?' he asked hurriedly. Prince Andrew replied. Then followed other questions just as simple. "'Was Kutuzov well?' "'When had he left Krems?' and so on. The Emperor spoke as if his sole aim were to put a given number of questions. The answers to these questions, as was only too evident, did not interest him. "'At what o'clock did the battle begin?' asked the Emperor. "'I cannot inform Your Majesty at what o'clock the battle began at the front. But at Durenstein, where I was, our attack began after five in the afternoon,' replied Bolkonsky, growing more animated and expecting that he would have a chance to give a reliable account, which he had ready in his mind of all he knew and had seen but the Emperor smiled and interrupted him. "'How many miles?' "'From where to where, Your Majesty?' "'From Durenstein to Krems.' Three and a half miles, Your Majesty.' "'The French have abandoned the left bank.' According to the scouts, the last of them crossed on rafts during the night. "'Is there sufficient forage in Krems?' "'Forage has not been supplied to the extent.' The Emperor interrupted him. At what o'clock was General Schmidt killed? At seven o'clock, I believe. At seven o'clock? It's very sad, very sad. The Emperor thanked Prince Andrew and bowed. Prince Andrew withdrew and was immediately surrounded by courtiers on all sides. Everywhere he saw friendly looks and heard friendly words. Yesterday's adjutant reproached him for not having stayed at the palace and offered him his own house. The Minister of War came up and congratulated him on the Maria Theresa Order of the Third Grade, which the Emperor was conferring on him. The Empress Chamberlain invited him to see Her Majesty. The Archduchess also wished to see him. He did not know whom to answer, and for a few seconds collected his thoughts. Then the Russian ambassador took him by the shoulder, led him to the window, and began to talk to him. Contrary to Believen's forecast, the news he had brought was joyfully received. A thanksgiving service was arranged, Kutuzov was awarded the Grand Cross of Maria Theresa, and the whole army received rewards. Bolkonsky was invited everywhere, and had to spend the whole morning calling on the principal Austrian dignitaries. Between four and five in the afternoon, having made all his calls, he was returning to Belieben's house, thinking out a letter to his father about the battle and his visit to Brunn. At the door he found a vehicle half full of luggage. Franz, Belieben's man, was dragging a portmanteau with some difficulty out of the front door. 
Before returning to Believens, Prince Andrew had gone to a bookshop to provide himself with some books for the campaign, and had spent some time in the shop. "'What is it?' he asked. "'Oh, Your Excellency,' said Franz, with difficulty rolling the portmanteau into the vehicle. "'We are to move on still farther. The scoundrel is again at our heels.' "'Eh? What?' asked Prince Andrew. Believen came out to meet him. His usually calm face showed excitement. "'There now, confess that this is delightful,' said he. "'This affair of the Tabor Bridge, at Vienna. They have crossed without striking a blow.' Prince Andrew could not understand. "'But where do you come from not to know what every coachman in the town knows?' "'I come from the Archduchess. I heard nothing there.' "'And you didn't see that everybody is packing up?' I did not. What is it all about?" inquired Prince Andrew impatiently. What's it all about? Why, the French have crossed the bridge that Auersburg was defending, and the bridge was not blown up. So Marat is now rushing along the road to Brune and will be here in a day or two. What? Here? But why did they not blow up the bridge, if it was mined? That is what I ask you. Not one, not even Bonaparte knows why. Volkonsky shrugged his shoulders. "'But if the bridge is crossed, it means that the army, too, is lost? It will be cut off,' said he. "'That's just it,' answered Belieben. "'Listen, the French entered Vienna as I told you. Very well. Next day, which was yesterday, those gentlemen, Messieurs les Marechaux, the marshals, Marat, Lannes, and Berriard, mount and ride to the bridge.' observe that all three are Gascons. "'Gentlemen,' says one of them, "'you know the Tabor Bridge is mined and doubly mined, and that there are menacing fortifications at its head, and an army of fifteen thousand men has been ordered to blow up the bridge and not let us cross? But it will please our sovereign, the Emperor Napoleon, if we take this bridge, so let us three go and take it.' "'Yes, let's,' say the others. And off they go and take the bridge, cross it, and now, with their whole army, are on this side of the Danube, marching on us, you, and your lines of communication." "'Stop jesting,' said Prince Andrew sadly and seriously. This news grieved him, and yet he was pleased. As soon as he learned that the Russian army was in such a hopeless situation, it occurred to him that it was he who was destined to lead it out of this position that here was the Toulon that would lift him from the ranks of obscure officers and offer him the first step to fame. Listening to Belieben, he was already imagining how on reaching the army he would give an opinion at the War Council which would be the only one that could save the army, and how he alone would be entrusted with the executing of the plan. "'Stop this jesting,' he said. "'I am not jesting,' Belieben went on nothing is truer or sadder. These gentlemen ride onto the bridge alone and wave white handkerchiefs. They assure the officer on duty that they, the marshals, are on their way to negotiate with Prince Ausberg. He lets them enter the Tete de Pont, bridgehead. They spin him a thousand gasconades, saying that the war is over, that the Emperor Francis is arranging a meeting with Bonaparte, that they desire to see Prince Ausberg, and so on. The officer sends for Ausberg. These gentlemen embrace the officers, crack jokes, sit on the cannon, 
and meanwhile a French battalion gets to the bridge unobserved, flings the bags of incendiary material into the water, and approaches the tête de pont. At length appears the lieutenant-general, our dear Prince Ausberg von Maltern himself. Dearest foe, flower of the Austrian army, hero of the Turkish wars, hostilities are ended, we can shake one another's hand. The Emperor Napoleon burns with impatience to make Prince Ausberg's acquaintance. In a word, those gentlemen, Gascons indeed, so bewildered him with fine words, and he is so flattered by his rapidly established intimacy with the French marshals, and so dazzled by the sight of Marat's mantle and ostrich plumes, qu'il n'y voit que de few, et oublie celui qu'il devait faire faire sur l'ennemi, that their fire gets into his eyes and he forgets that he ought to be firing at the enemy. In spite of the animation of his speech, Belieben did not forget to pause after this mot to give time for its due appreciation. The French battalion rushes to the bridgehead, spikes the guns, and the bridge is taken. But what is best of all, he went on, his excitement subsiding under the delightful interest of his own story, is that the sergeant in charge of the cannon which is to give the signal to fire the mines and blow up the bridge, this sergeant, seeing that the French troops were running onto the bridge, was about to fire, but Lannes stayed his hand. The sergeant, who was evidently wiser than his general, goes up to Augsburg and says, "'Prince, you are being deceived. Here are the French.' Marat, seeing that all is lost if the sergeant is allowed to speak, turns to Augsburg with feigned astonishment, he is a true Gascon, and says, I don't recognize the world-famous Austrian discipline if you allow a subordinate to address you like that. It was a stroke of genius. Prince Ausberg feels his dignity at stake and orders the sergeant to be arrested. Come, you must own that this affair of the Tabber Bridge is delightful. It is not exactly stupidity, nor rascality. It may be treachery said Prince Andrew, vividly imagining the grey overcoats, wounds, the smoke of gunpowder, the sounds of firing, and the glory that awaited him. "'Not that either. That puts the court in too bad a light,' replied Belieben. "'It's not treachery, nor rascality, nor stupidity. It is just as at home. It is—' He seemed to be trying to find the right expression. "'Cess—cess to Mac!' Nous sommes Macs. It is, it is a bit of Mac. We are Macked, he concluded, feeling that he had produced a good epigram, a fresh one that would be repeated. His hitherto puckered brow became smooth as a sign of pleasure, and with a slight smile he began to examine his nails. Where are you off to? he said suddenly to Prince Andrew, who had risen and was going toward his room. I am going away. Where to? To the army. But you meant to stay another two days. But now I am off at once." And Prince Andrew, after giving directions about his departure, went to his room. "'Do you know, mon cher,' said Belieben, following him, "'I have been thinking about you. Why are you going?' And in proof of the conclusiveness of his opinion all the wrinkles vanished from his face. Prince Andrew looked inquiringly at him and gave no reply. "'Why are you going? I know you think it your duty to gallop back to the army now that it is in danger. I understand that. 
Monsieur, it is heroism. Not at all, said Prince Andrew. But as you are a philosopher, be a consistent one, look at the other side of the question, and you will see that your duty, on the contrary, is to take care of yourself. Leave it to those who are no longer fit for anything else. You have not been ordered to return, and have not been dismissed from here. Therefore you can stay and go with us wherever our ill-luck takes us. They say we are going to Olmutz, and Olmutz is a very decent town. You and I will travel comfortably in my kalesh. Do stop joking, Belieben, cried Bolkonsky. I am speaking sincerely as a friend. Consider, where and why are you going, when you might remain here? You are faced by one of two things." And the skin over his left temple puckered. Either you will not reach your regiment before peace is concluded, or you will share defeat and disgrace with Kutuzov's whole army." And Belieben unwrinkled his temple, feeling that the dilemma was insoluble. "'I cannot argue about it,' replied Prince Andrew coldly but he thought, I am going to save the army. "'My dear fellow, you are a hero,' said Belieben. End of Book Two, Chapter Twelve Book Two, Chapter Thirteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Thirteen. That same night, having taken leave of the Minister of War, Bolkonsky set off to rejoin the army, not knowing where he would find it and fearing to be captured by the French on the way to Krems. In Brune, everybody attached to the court was packing up, and the heavy baggage was already being dispatched to Olmutz. Near Hetzelsdorf Prince Andrew struck the high road along which the Russian army was moving with great haste and in the greatest disorder. The road was so obstructed with carts that it was impossible to get by in a carriage. Prince Andrew took a horse and a Cossack from a Cossack commander, and, hungry and weary, making his way past the baggage-wagons, rode in search of the commander-in-chief and of his own luggage. Very sinister reports of the position of the army reached him as he went along and the appearance of the troops and their disorderly flight confirmed these rumours. Cette armée russe, que lors de l'Angleterre a transporté d'extremité de l'univers, nous allons lui faire improver le même sort, le sort de l'armée d'homme. That Russian army which has been brought from the ends of the earth by English gold, we shall cause to share the same fate, the fate of the army at home. He remembered these words in Bonaparte's address to his army at the beginning of the campaign, and they awoke in him astonishment at the genius of his hero, a feeling of wounded pride, and a hope of glory. And should there be nothing left but to die, he thought, well, if need be, I shall do it no worse than others. He looked with disdain at the endless confused mass of detachments carts, guns, artillery, and again baggage-wagons and vehicles of all kinds overtaking one another and blocking the muddy road, three and sometimes four abreast. From all sides, behind and before, as far as ear could reach, there were the rattle of wheels, the creaking of carts and gun-carriages, 
the tramp of horses, the crack of whips, shouts, the urging of horses, and the swearing of soldiers, orderlies, and officers. All along the sides of the road fallen horses were to be seen, some flayed, some not, and broken-down carts beside which solitary soldiers sat waiting for something, and again soldiers straggling from their companies, crowds of whom set off to the neighboring villages or returned from them dragging sheep, fowls, hay, and bulging sacks. At each ascent or descent of the road the crowds were yet denser, and the din of shouting more incessant. Soldiers floundering knee-deep in mud pushed the guns and wagons themselves. Whips cracked, hoofs slipped, traces broke, and lungs were strained with shouting. The officers directing the march rode backward and forward between the carts. Their voices were but feebly heard amid the uproar, and one saw by their faces that they despaired the possibility of checking this disorder. "'Here's our dear Orthodox Russian army,' thought Volkonsky, recalling Belieben's words. Wishing to find out where the commander-in-chief was, he rode up to a convoy. Directly opposite to him came a strange one-horse vehicle, evidently rigged up by soldiers out of any available materials, and looking like something between a cart, a cabriolet, and a caleche. A soldier was driving, and a woman enveloped in shawl sat behind the apron under the leather hood of the vehicle. Prince Andrew rode up and was just putting his question to a soldier, when his attention was diverted by the desperate shrieks of the woman in the vehicle. An officer in charge of transport was beating the soldier who was driving the woman's vehicle for trying to get ahead of others, and the strokes of his whip fell on the apron of the equipage. The woman screamed piercingly. Seeing Prince Andrew, she leaned out from behind the apron, and waving her thin arms from under the woolen shawl, cried, "'Mr. Aide-de-Camp! Mr. Aide-de-Camp! For heaven's sake, protect me! What will become of us? I am the wife of the doctor of the Seventh Chasseurs! They won't let us pass. We are left behind and have lost our people." "'I'll flatten you into a pancake!' shouted the angry officer to the soldier. "'Turn back with your slut!' "'Mr. Aide-de-Camp, help me! What does it all mean?' screamed the doctor's wife. "'Kindly let this cart pass. Don't you see it's a woman?' said Prince Andrew, riding up to the officer. The officer glanced at him, and without replying turned again to the soldier. I'll teach you to push on. Back! Let them pass, I tell you," repeated Prince Andrew, compressing his lips. "'And who are you?' cried the officer, turning on him with tipsy rage. "'Who are you? Are you in command here? Eh? I am commander here, not you. Go back or I'll flatten you into a pancake,' repeated he. This expression evidently pleased him. "'That was a nice snub for the little aide-de-camp,' came a voice from behind. Prince Andrew saw that the officer was in that state of senseless, tipsy rage, when a man does not know what he is saying. He saw that his championship of the doctor's wife in her queer trap might expose him to what he dreaded more than anything in the world, to ridicule. But his instinct urged him on. Before the officer finished his sentence, Prince Andrew, his face distorted with fury, rode up to him and raised his riding-whip. "'Kindly let them pass!' The officer flourished his arm and hastily rode away. "'It's all the fault of these fellows on the staff that there's this disorder,' he muttered. "'Do as you like.' 
Prince Andrew, without lifting his eyes, rode hastily away from the doctor's wife, who was calling him her deliverer, and, recalling with a sense of disgust the minutest details of this humiliating scene, he galloped on to the village where he was told who the commander-in-chief was. On reaching the village he dismounted and went to the nearest house, intending to rest, if but for a moment, eat something, and try to sort out the stinging and tormenting thoughts that confused his mind. "'This is a mob of scoundrels and not an army,' he was thinking as he went up to the window of the first house, when a familiar voice called him by name. He turned round. Nesvitsky's handsome face looked out of the little window. Nesvitsky, moving his moist lips as he chewed something, and flourishing his arm, called him to enter. "'Balkonsky! Balkonsky! Don't you hear, eh? Come quick!' he shouted. Entering the house, Prince Andrew saw Nesvitsky and another adjutant having something to eat. They hastily turned round to him, asking if he had any news. On their familiar faces he read agitation and alarm. This was particularly noticeable on Nesvitsky's usually laughing countenance. "'Where is the commander-in-chief?' asked Bolkonsky. "'Here, in that house,' answered the adjutant. "'Well, is it true that it's peace and capitulation?' asked Nesvitsky. "'I was going to ask you. I know nothing except that it was all I could do to get here. And we, my dear boy, it's terrible. I was wrong to laugh at Mac. We're getting it still worse," said Nesvitsky. "'But sit down and have something to eat.' "'You won't be able to find either your baggage or anything else now, Prince, and God only knows where your man Peter is,' said the other adjutant. "'Where are headquarters?' "'We are to spend the night in Znaim.' "'Well, I've got all I need into packs for two horses,' said Nesvitsky. "'They've made up splendid packs for me, fit to cross the Bohemian Mountains with.' It's a bad lookout, old fellow. But what's the matter with you? You must be ill to shiver like that," he added, noticing that Prince Andrew winced as at an electric shock. It's nothing," replied Prince Andrew. He had just remembered his recent encounter with the doctor's wife and the convoy officer. What's the commander-in-chief doing here? he asked. I can't make out at all," said Nesvitsky. Well, all I can make out is that everything is abominable, abominable, quite abominable," said Prince Andrew, and he went off to the house where the commander-in-chief was. Passing Kutuzov's carriage and the exhausted saddle-horses of his suite, with their Cossacks who were talking loudly together, Prince Andrew entered the passage. Kutuzov himself, he was told, was in the house with Prince Bagradian and Veyroder. Veyroder was the Austrian general who had succeeded Schmidt. In the passage little Kozlovsky was squatting on his heels in front of a clerk. The clerk, with cuffs turned up, was hastily writing at a tub turned bottom upwards. Kozlovsky's face looked worn. He, too, had evidently not slept all night. He glanced at Prince Andrew and did not even nod to him. Second line. Have you written it?' he continued, dictating to the clerk. "'The Kiev Grenadiers, Podolian—one can't write so fast, Your Honor said the clerk, glancing angrily and disrespectfully at Kozlovsky. Through the door came the sounds of Kutuzov's voice, excited and dissatisfied, interrupted by another, an unfamiliar voice. From the sound of these voices 
the inattentive way Kozlovsky looked at him, the disrespectful manner of the exhausted clerk, the fact that the clerk and Kozlovsky were squatting on the floor by a tub so near to the commander-in-chief, and from the noisy laughter of the Cossacks holding the horses near the window, Prince Andrew felt that something important and disastrous was about to happen. He turned to Kozlovsky with urgent questions. "'Immediately, Prince,' said Kozlovsky. "'Dispositions for Bagration.' "'What about capitulation?' "'Nothing of the sort. Orders are issued for a battle.' Prince Andrew moved toward the door from whence voices were heard. Just as he was going to open it, the sound ceased, the door opened, and Kutuzov, with his eagle nose and puffy face, appeared in the doorway. Prince Andrew stood right in front of Kutuzov, but the expression of the commander-in-chief's one sound eye showed him to be so preoccupied with thoughts and anxieties as to be oblivious of his presence. He looked straight at his adjutant's face without recognizing him. "'Well, have you finished?' said he to Kozlovsky. "'One moment, Your Excellency.' Bagradian, a gaunt middle-aged man of medium height, with a firm, impassive face of oriental type, came out after the commander-in-chief. "'I have the honor to present myself,' repeated Prince Andrew, rather loudly, handing Kutuzov an envelope. "'Ah, from Vienna? Very good. Later, later.' Kutuzov went out into the porch with Bagradian. "'Well, good-bye, Prince,' said he to Bagradian. My blessing, and may Christ be with you in your great endeavor." His face suddenly softened and tears came into his eyes. With his left hand he drew Bagradian toward him, and with his right, on which he wore a ring, he made the sign of the cross over him with a gesture evidently habitual, offering his puffy cheek, but Bagradian kissed him on the neck instead. "'Christ be with you,' Kutuzov repeated and went toward his carriage. "'Get in with me.' he said to Bolkonsky. "'Your Excellency, I should like to be of use here. Allow me to remain with Prince Bagradian's detachment.' "'Get in,' said Kutuzov, and noticing that Bolkonsky still delayed, he added, "'I need good officers myself, need them myself.' They got into the carriage and drove for a few minutes in silence. "'There is still much, much before us.' he said, as if with an old man's penetration he understood all that was passing in Bolkonsky's mind. "'If a tenth part of this detachment returns, I shall thank God,' he added, as if speaking to himself. Prince Andrew glanced at Kutuzov's face only a foot distant from him, and involuntarily noticed the carefully washed seams of the scar near his temple, where an Ismail bullet had pierced his skull and the empty eye-socket. Yes, he has a right to speak so calmly of those men's death," thought Bolkonsky. "'That is why I beg to be sent to that detachment,' he said. Kutuzov did not reply. He seemed to have forgotten what he had been saying, and sat plunged in thought. Five minutes later, gently swaying on the soft springs of the carriage, he turned to Prince Andrew. There was not a trace of agitation on his face. With delicate irony he questioned Prince Andrew about the details of his interview with the Emperor, about the remarks he had heard at court concerning the Krems affair, and about some ladies they both knew. End of Book Two, Chapter Thirteen Book Two, Chapter Fourteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy 
translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Fourteen. On November first, Kutuzov had received through a spy news that the army he commanded was in an almost hopeless position. The spy reported that the French, after crossing the bridge at Vienna, were advancing in immense force upon Kutuzov's line of communication with the troops that were arriving from Russia. If Kutuzov decided to remain at Krems, Napoleon's army of one hundred and fifty thousand men would cut him off completely, and surround his exhausted army of forty thousand, and he would find himself in the position of Mack at Ulm. If Kutuzov decided to abandon the road connecting him with the troops arriving from Russia, he would have to march with no road into unknown parts of the Bohemian Mountains, defending himself against superior forces of the enemy, and abandoning all hope of a junction with Buxhauden. If Kutuzov decided to retreat along the road from Krems to Olmutz, to unite with the troops arriving from Russia, he risked being forestalled on that road by the French who had crossed the Vienna Bridge, and encumbered by his baggage and transport, having to accept battle on the march against an enemy three times as strong, who would hem him in from two sides. Kutuzov chose this latter course. The French, the spy reported, having crossed the Vienna Bridge, were advancing by forced marches towards Znaim, which lay sixty-six miles off on the line of Kutuzov's retreat. If he reached Znaim before the French, there would be great hope of saving the army. To let the French forestall him at Znaim meant the exposure of his whole army to a disgrace such as that of Ulm, or to utter destruction. But to forestall the French with his whole army was impossible. The road for the French from Vienna to Znaim was shorter and better than the road for the Russians from Krems to Znaim. The night he received the news, Kutuzov sent Bagradian's vanguard, four thousand strong, to the right across the hills from the Krems's Nime to the Vienna's Nime Road. Bagradian was to make this march without resting, and to halt facing Vienna with Znaim to his rear, and if he succeeded in forestalling the French, he was to delay them as long as possible. Kutuzov himself, with all his transport, took the road to Znaim. Marching thirty miles that stormy night across roadless hills, with his hungry, ill-shod soldiers, and losing a third of his men as stragglers by the way, Bagradian came out on the Vienna's Nime road at Holdebrun a few hours ahead of the French, who were approaching Holdebrun from Vienna. Kutuzov, with his transport, had still to march for some days before he could reach Znaim. Hence Bagradian, with his four thousand hungry, exhausted men, would have to detain for days the whole enemy army that came upon him at Holdebrun, which was clearly impossible but a freak of fate made the impossible possible. The success of the trick that had placed the Vienna Bridge in the hands of the French without a fight led Marat to try to deceive Kutuzov in a similar way. Meeting Bagradian's weak detachment on the Znaim road, he supposed it to be Kutuzov's whole army. To be able to crush it absolutely, he awaited the arrival of the rest of the troops who were on their way from Vienna, and with this object offered a three days' truce on condition that both armies should remain in position without moving. Murad declared that negotiations for peace were already proceeding, and that he therefore offered this truce to avoid unnecessary bloodshed. Count Nostitz, the Austrian general occupying the advanced posts, 
believed Murat's emissary and retired, leaving Bagradian's division exposed. Another emissary rode to the Russian line to announce the peace negotiations and to offer the Russian army the three days' truce. Bagradian replied that he was not authorized either to accept or refuse a truce, and sent his adjutant to Kutuzov to report the offer he had received. A truce was Kutuzov's sole chance of gaining time, giving Bagradian's exhausted troops some rest, and letting the transport and heavy convoys, whose movements were concealed from the French, advance if but one stage nearer Znaim. The offer of a truce gave the only, and a quite unexpected, chance of saving the army. On receiving the news, he immediately dispatched Adjutant-General Witzengrota, who was in attendance on him, to the enemy camp. Vincent Grota was not merely to agree to the truce, but also to offer terms of capitulation. And meanwhile, Kutuzov sent his adjutants back to hasten to the utmost the movements of the baggage trains of the entire army along the Krems Nime Road. Bagradian's exhausted and hungry detachment, which alone covered this movement of the transport and of the whole army, had to remain stationary in face of an enemy eight times as strong as itself. Kutuzov's expectations that the proposals of capitulation, which were in no way binding, might give time for part of the transport to pass, and also that Marat's mistake would very soon be discovered, proved correct. As soon as Bonaparte, who was at Schönbrunn, sixteen miles from Holobrunn, received Marat's dispatch with a proposal of a truce and a capitulation, he detected a ruse and wrote the following letter to Marat. Schoenbrunn, 25th Brumaire, 1805, at eight o'clock in the morning. To Prince Murat. I cannot find words to express to you my displeasure. You command only my advance guard, and have no right to arrange an armistice without my order. You are causing me to lose the fruits of a campaign. Break the armistice immediately and march on the enemy. Inform him that the general who signed that capitulation had no right to do so and that no one but the Emperor of Russia has that right. If, however, the Emperor of Russia ratifies that convention, I will ratify it, but it is only a trick. March on, destroy the Russian army. You are in a position to seize its baggage and artillery. The Russian Emperor's aide-de-camp is an impostor. Officers are nothing when they have no powers. This one had none. The Austrians let themselves be tricked at the crossing of the Vienna Bridge, you are letting yourself be tricked by an aide-de-camp of the Emperor. Napoleon Bonaparte's adjutant rode full gallop with this menacing letter to Marat. Bonaparte himself, not trusting to his generals, moved with all the guards to the field of battle, afraid of letting a ready victim escape. And Bagradian's four thousand men merrily lighted campfires, dried and warmed themselves, cooked their porridge for the first time for three days, and not one of them knew or imagined what was in store for him. End of Book Two, Chapter Fourteen. Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of War and Peace, Volume One by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Fifteen. Between three and four o'clock in the afternoon, Prince Andrew, who had persisted in his request to Kutuzov, arrived at Grunth and reported himself to Bagradian. 
Bonaparte's adjutant had not yet reached Murat's detachment and the battle had not yet begun. In Bagration's detachment no one knew anything of the general position of affairs. They talked of peace but did not believe in its possibility. Others talked of a battle but also disbelieved in the nearness of an engagement. Bagration, knowing Bolkonsky to be a favorite and trusted adjutant, received him with distinction and special marks of favor, explaining to him that there would probably be an engagement that day or the next, and giving him full liberty to remain with him during the battle, or to join the rearguard and have an eye on the order of retreat, which is also very important. However, there will hardly be an engagement today," said Bagration, as if to reassure Prince Andrew. If he is one of the ordinary little staff dandies sent to earn a medal, he can get his reward just as well in the rearguard. But if he wishes to stay with me, let him. He'll be of use here, if he's a brave officer," thought Bagration. Prince Andrew, without replying, asked the prince's permission to ride round the position to see the disposition of the forces, so as to know his bearings should he be sent to execute an order. The officer on duty, a handsome, elegantly dressed man with a diamond ring on his forefinger, who was fond of speaking French, though he spoke it badly, offered to conduct Prince Andrew. On all sides they saw rain-soaked officers with dejected faces who seemed to be seeking something, and soldiers dragging doors, benches, and fencing from the village. "'There now, Prince, we can't stop those fellows,' said the staff officer, pointing to the soldiers. The officers don't keep them in hand. And there," he pointed to a sutler's tent, they crowd in and sit. This morning I turned them all out and now look, it's full again. I must go there, Prince, and scare them a bit. It won't take a moment. Yes, let's go in and I will get myself a roll and some cheese," said Prince Andrew, who had not yet had time to eat anything. Why didn't you mention it, Prince? I would have offered you something. They dismounted and entered the tent. Several officers, with flushed and weary faces, were sitting at the table eating and drinking. "'Now what does this mean, gentlemen?' said the staff officer, in the reproachful tone of a man who has repeated the same thing more than once. "'You know it won't do to leave your post like this. The Prince gave orders that no one should leave his post. Now you, Captain!' and he turned to a thin, dirty little artillery officer who, without his boots, he had given them to the canteen-keeper to dry, in only his stockings, rose when they entered, smiling not altogether comfortably. "'Well, aren't you ashamed of yourself, Captain Tushin?' he continued. "'One would think that as an artillery officer you would set a good example, yet here you are without your boots. The alarm will be sounded, and you will be in a pretty position without your boots.' The staff officer smiled. "'Kindly return to your post, gentlemen, all of you, all!' he added in a tone of command. Prince Andrew smiled involuntarily as he looked at the artillery officer Tushin, who, silent and smiling, shifting from one stockinged foot to the other, glanced inquiringly with his large, intelligent, kindly eyes from Prince Andrew to the staff officer. "'The soldiers say it feels easier without boots.' said Captain Tushin, smiling shyly in his uncomfortable position, evidently wishing to adopt a jocular tone. But before he had finished he felt that his jest was unacceptable, and had not come off. He grew confused. "'Kindly return to your posts,' said the staff officer, trying to preserve his gravity. 
Prince Andrew glanced again at the artillery officer's small figure. There was something peculiar about it, quite unsoldierly, rather comic, but extremely attractive. The staff officer and Prince Andrew mounted their horses and rode on. Having ridden beyond the village, continually meeting and overtaking soldiers and officers of various regiments, they saw on their left some entrenchments being thrown up, the freshly dug clay of which showed up red. Several battalions of soldiers, in their shirt-sleeves despite the cold wind, swarmed in these earthworks like a host of white ants. Spadefuls of red clay were continually being thrown up from behind the bank by unseen hands. Prince Andrew and the officer rode up, looked at the entrenchment, and went on again. Just behind it they came upon some dozens of soldiers, continually replaced by others who ran from the entrenchment. They had to hold their noses and put their horses to a trot to escape from the poisoned atmosphere of these latrines. Voilà le grand de camp, monsieur le prince. This is a pleasure one gets in camp, prince, said the staff officer. They rode up the opposite hill. From there the French could already be seen. Prince Andrew stopped and began examining the position. That's our battery, said the staff officer, indicating the highest point. It's in charge of the queer fellow we saw without his boots. You can see everything from there. Let's go there, Prince." "'Thank you very much. I will go on alone,' said Prince Andrew, wishing to rid himself of this staff officer's company. "'Please don't trouble yourself further.' The staff officer remained behind and Prince Andrew rode on alone. The farther forward and nearer the enemy he went, the more orderly and cheerful were the troops. The greatest disorder and depression had been in the baggage train he had passed that morning on the Znaim road seven miles away from the French. At Grunth also some apprehension and alarm could be felt, but the nearer Prince Andrew came to the French lines the more confident was the appearance of our troops. The soldiers in their greatcoats were ranged in lines. The sergeants major and company officers were counting the men, poking the last man in each section in the ribs and telling him to hold his hand up. Soldiers scattered over the whole place were dragging logs and brushwood and were building shelters with merry chatter and laughter. Around the fire sat others, dressed and undressed, drying their shirts and leg-bands or mending boots or overcoats and crowding round the boilers and porridge-cookers. In one company dinner was ready, and the soldiers were gazing eagerly at the steaming boiler, waiting till the sample, which a quartermaster sergeant was carrying in a wooden bowl, to an officer who sat on a log before his shelter had been tasted. Another company, a lucky one, for not all the companies had vodka, crowded round a pockmarked, broad-shouldered sergeant-major, who, tilting a keg, filled one after another the canteen lids held out to him. The soldiers lifted the canteen lids to their lips with reverential faces, emptied them, rolling the vodka in their mouths, and walked away from the sergeant-major with brightened expressions licking their lips and wiping them on the sleeves of their greatcoats. All their faces were as serene as if all this were happening at home, awaiting peaceful encampment, and not within sight of the enemy before an action in which at least half of them would be left on the field. After passing a chasseur regiment and in the lines of the Kiev grenadiers, fine fellows busy with similar peaceful affairs, near the shelter of the regimental commander, higher than and different from the others, Prince Andrew came out in front of a platoon of grenadiers, before whom lay a naked man. 
Two soldiers held him while two others were flourishing their switches and striking him regularly on his bare back. The man shrieked unnaturally. A stout major was pacing up and down the line, and regardless of the screams, kept repeating, "'It's a shame for a soldier to steal. A soldier must be honest, honorable, and brave, but if he robs his fellows there is no honor in him. He is a scoundrel. Go on, go on!' So the swishing sound of the strokes and the desperate but unnatural screams continued. "'Go on, go on!' said the major. A young officer, with a bewildered and pained expression on his face, stepped away from the man and looked round inquiringly at the adjutant as he rode by. Prince Andrew, having reached the front line, rode along it. Our front line and that of the enemy were far apart on the right and left banks, but in the center, where the men with a flag of truce had passed that morning, the lines were so near together that the men could see one another's faces and speak to one another. Besides the soldiers who formed the picket line on either side, there were many curious onlookers, who, jesting and laughing, stared at their strange foreign enemies. Since early morning, despite an injunction not to approach the picket line, the officers have been unable to keep sightseers away. The soldiers forming the picket line, like showmen exhibiting a curiosity, no longer looked at the French, but paid attention to the sightseers, and grew weary waiting to be relieved. Prince Andrew halted to have a look at the French. "'Look! Look there!' One soldier was saying to another, pointing to a Russian musketeer, who had gone up to the picket line with an officer and was rapidly and excitedly talking to a French grenadier. "'Hark to him jabbering! Fine, isn't it? It's all the French he can do to keep up with him! There now, Sidorov!' "'Wait a bit and listen. It's fine,' answered Sidorov who was considered an adept at French. The soldier to whom the laughers referred was Dolokhov. Prince Andrew recognized him and stopped to listen to what he was saying. Dolokhov had come from the left flank, where their regiment was stationed, with his captain. "'Now then, go on, go on,' incited the officer, bending forward and trying not to lose a word of the speech which was incomprehensible to him. "'More, please, more. What's he saying?' Dolokhov did not answer the captain. He had been drawn into a hot dispute with the French grenadier. They were naturally talking about the campaign. The Frenchman, confusing the Austrians with the Russians, was trying to prove that the Russians had surrendered and had fled all the way from Ulm, while Dolokhov maintained that the Russians had not surrendered but had beaten the French. "'We have orders to drive you off here, and we shall drive you off,' said Dolokhov. Only take care you and your Cossacks are not all captured," said the French grenadier. The French onlookers listened and laughed. "'We'll make you dance as we did under Suvorov. On vous fera danser,' said Dolokhov. "'Qu'est-ce qu'il chante? What's he singing about?' asked a Frenchman. "'It's ancient history,' said another, guessing that it referred to a former war. The Emperor will teach your Savara as he taught the others. Bonaparte, began Dolokhov, but the Frenchman interrupted him. Not Bonaparte! He is the Emperor! Sacre nom! cried he angrily. The devil skin your Emperor! And Dolokhov swore at him in coarse soldier's Russian, and shouldering his musket, walked away. Let us go, Ivan Nukic, he said to the captain. "'Ah, that's the way to talk French,' 
said the picket soldiers. Now, Sidorov, you have a try. Sidorov, turning to the French, winked and began to jabber meaningless sounds very fast. Karimaratafasafi Mutarkaska, he said, trying to give an expressive intonation to his voice. Ho, ho, ho! Ha, 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 ha! Oh, oh! came peals of such healthy and good-humoured laughter from the soldiers that it infected the French involuntarily, so much so that the only thing left to do seemed to be to unload the muskets, explode the ammunition, and all return home as quickly as possible. But the guns remained loaded, the loopholes in the blockhouses and entrenchments looked out just as menacingly, and the unlimbered cannon confronted one another as before. End of Book Two, Chapter Fifteen. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.